Okay, you can be seated. Good morning. Good morning again. Um, <clears throat> I want to make sure you keep in mind July the 6th. <clears throat> if you were here last week, we ex- expressed to you that is going to be a very different morning. <clears throat> and actually, July is going to be a very different month. And um, But on that July the 6th, we're going to only have one service at 1030. And... Uh, excuse me, I just, <coughs> something went down the wrong pipe. I don't know what it is. Oh, at the wrong time. Anyway, <coughs> I don't really need any water because it'll just make it worse. Um, but July the 6th at 1030, we'll have one service and uh, we'll have a meal together afterwards. And as you notice, there's bright light from this area of the church, the south side. There's no longer, (coughs) excuse me, there's no longer a wood wall. There's no longer plastic up there. We're so excited to have that down and have a single space. It'll take us a little time to sync sound and lighting and painting and making all the adjustments to uh, adding that space. But uh, we're very, very excited about it. So. Don't miss July the 6th. It's really going to be a great time. We'll give you more details, particularly on the food. We're going to have you participate by bringing food. But when it's all said and done, we're going to be filling up every space with uh, tables. And it's going to be a very enjoyable time to uh, celebrate sort of a new beginning for us. And uh, after this, this long winter and long process of building. Okay. So... We are, if you're wondering why you're here, we are going through a series on the Gospel of John entitled Reclaiming Life. Right in the middle of that biography of Jesus are the words, I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. Um, Christ said in John 1 that I've come that you might have life. And so we've been exploring the words of Jesus Every week, just opening up uh, a new section in this gospel, trying to uh, give a plain, simple understanding of what the words of Christ mean. So uh, we'll continue that uh, here just a little bit. I'd like to say a few things about success that relates to our message today. You know, success for the purpose of self-validation is a slippery thing. Success driven by the expectation for others, or by others, is equally as slippery. Success that becomes addictive turns on itself and destroys the person pursuing it. Or for the exceptional person that attains success, at least as our culture defines it, there is the awful realization that it does not solve The inward sense of inadequacy, the sense of being unimportant or inconsequential. Consider Alex Rodriguez, famous baseball player. Why would an athlete who has reached the pinnacle of success risk it all by taking steroids, by illegal steroids? By 2001, A-Rod had been awarded the highest contract in the history of professional sports. 
at the peak of his career, he had more money than he could spend in 10 lifetimes. Today, A-Rod is away from the game, banned for taking steroids, and his reputation forever tarnished by his shameful attempts to cover it up. Now, I loved what this New York Times writer said uh, in a warning for all of us about success in relation to A-Rod. David Brooks wrote this. Self-preoccupied people have trouble seeing that their talents come from outside themselves and can only be developed when directed towards something outside them. Enclosed in self, they become to believe that their talents come from self and are for themselves. Locked in a cycle of insecurity and self-validation, their talents are never enough and they end up devouring what they have been given. Another example from the world of music. Pop legend Madonna is quoted by Tim Keller in Counterfeit Gods. But she says this, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life from this horrible fear, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And it's always pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. Those stories hit home to you, relate to you. I mean, none of us, of course, have the same outward success. At least I don't think so. But perhaps you can relate to a drive that is fueled by the same fears. Some of Madonna's statements sounds like my sermons that I give. Mediocre, uninteresting. <laughs> a few years ago, on my, uh, I took a sabbatical. And in that sabbatical, a friend helped me to discover a lie that was lodged deep into my heart. And the lie went something like this. I need to be exceptional, exceptional to be loved. I need to be exceptional to be fulfilled. Now, when I say exceptional, I mean beyond just simply doing your best and doing and using every talent that you have. But I'm talking about a certain state of being in relationship to other people. For me, the thought of being average, at least being perceived that way by others, sent a shudder deep into my soul that I couldn't explain. It was, it's a lie. It's not true. And it's a lie that compromised my vision of true success. Well... This week's story features a man who found his greatest joy while his outward signs of success were diminishing. What does that look like? That's what we're after today. Open your Bibles to John chapter 3. If you're using the Bible in front of you, I think it is page 887. Or 888. 
Last week, if you weren't here, we covered verses 16 through 21, which included the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. And then we went on to talk about the nature of love, the nature of belief, and why some don't believe. So today we're going to begin at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon, near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride, is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves his Son and has given all things into his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There are three questions that I think bubble up from this passage that are relevant for us today. Number one, what is God's story? Number two, how does John the Baptist find his place in that story? Thirdly, why is Jesus greater And then finally, just a little bit, we'll try to answer the question, how do I find my place in God's story? Let's let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for gathering us here together. We've already been able to communicate with you about our concerns for the world. And Father, now we draw those concerns to just to, to every person in this room, to to my friends and to myself. Um, Father, we ask you today, no matter what we've brought with us here, what sort of pains or brokenness or joys, uh, things that maybe we're celebrating, things that we're grieving over, anxieties that maybe we've brought about our future, anxieties about loved ones, maybe conflicts with loved ones or maybe a wisdom that's needed for a vocational choice. Father, whatever we've brought today, there's, there's something that you desire to give. And so will you bring us to a place of quiet and a place where our souls are still so that we're able to hear your voice speak and that we can receive 
the gift that you desire to give to each of us this morning. And Father, one of the greatest gifts you ever gave was the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Father, that if someone here this morning has never received, doesn't have the Spirit of God living in them, might they receive that Spirit this morning. And Father, for us who are in that friendship already, might we receive a a renewal, a, a refreshing of that gift of your Holy Spirit this morning. Open up our eyes to see. Educate us, Father. Illumine us. Enlighten us. Give us spiritual eyes to see and faith to see this morning what's real and true. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Okay. All right. Ready for the first question? First question. What is God's story? You might think, oh man, this is going to be long. All right, we'll do it just summarize it here in a nutshell. What is God's story? I want to focus on one way of, of, of describing this. God's story in the world begins with His revelation. That's not Revelation, the TV show. That's not Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Revelation speaks to how God has shown, revealed, and made clear who He is. He does not show up visibly in the sky so that people are overwhelmed by Him. But He shows up in a way that draws us to seek Him if we want to find Him. He reveals Himself that we might know Him. If we respond to His revelation humbly and with gratitude, we can learn to relate to Him personally and with integrity. Now, this revelation did not take place all at once. God giving us everything in like one big, massive helping, one big heap of mashed potatoes. Rather, it happened progressively over time. Sometimes God would use a specific name to introduce himself, and that name would unpack a meaning as to who he is. Significant events were also pivot points where God would open up some new dimension, like unfolding protective layers over a beautiful painting. Events like creation, appearing to Moses in the burning bush, the Exodus, or giving the Ten Commandments were all such pivot points. Now, this is a critical point. Later revelations never contradicted existing ones, but rather deepened the foundation already laid. Now, speeding up to the gospel of John, John mentions one of these pivot points in relation to Jesus. Turn back two pages, or just one page, look at John chapter 1, verse 17. Notice the contrast. For the law was given to Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. He, the pronoun there refers to Jesus, and him is the Father. Another version of the Bible says Jesus explains who the Father is. Now, Uh, Think about this contrast with me for a moment. Moses 
represents the law. Why? Well, one, he was given the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. Two, he wrote the Levitical law with all of its regulations and practices. The law captures the absolute holiness and purity of God. The law is like a mirror. We look into that mirror, and what comes back to us is who we really are. Now, we should keep in mind the law never gives us good news. Never. Just the same way you might feel when you first look at yourself in the morning in the mirror. Never brings back good news. The law, looking into God's absolute holiness, looking into all of these rituals and rites that gave us a hint of our need to be morally cleansed before approaching God, they never bring good news. Why? Because we never keep it. We can't maintain it. We, we, we never have, we never will. The law makes us aware of our need for grace, our need for mercy. That's why in the New Testament, the writers said this, that the law helps lead us to Jesus, the source of grace, because the law helps us recognize how far we have fallen from God's infinite worth and his infinite beauty. Now, Moses represents the law. Jesus represents grace and truth. I might submit to you one more verse about this this morning. You remember the Apostle Paul wrote this about the glory of God. Where do we see the glory of God, Paul wrote? Where do we see the magnificence and splendor of God? We see it in the face of of Christ. In other words, Jesus is the extension of God's progressive unfolding of himself. Jesus is God's clearest image, clearest mirror of himself. So simply put, to wrap up this first point, what is God's story in the world? It is to reveal himself to every single person that they might know him. Wow, what a big task. We learned a few weeks ago that God, we live in this age, this era, where God gives the Holy Spirit. And with the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we become co-workers with God in this story. We join in with the same commission given to the apostles. That is going to the world with the story of God. A story where he made himself clear and accessible through Jesus. The apostles were called to communicate, teach, and baptize in his name. That is why the church has grown to hundreds and millions across the world. And it's why we're sitting here today. Because about 15 young men and women, barely out of their teens, felt this sense of going and making disciples on their hearts. And in 1973, they came to Columbus, Ohio. That's why we're here. It's a story that we are still a part of today. Okay, so we clear on that one? That is God's story. Amazing, immense. With the world as its scope. Secondly, now... This figure that is so prominent in our section, John the Baptist, 
Like, how does he find his place in this story? Okay, go back to that John 1, 17 and 18. And I need to just say one thing that we need to remember. Sometimes we get a little, people get mistaken on this. It's important to keep in mind that though Moses represents the law and Jesus represents grace and truth, Jesus did not nullify the law. Jesus does not despise the law, but rather he fulfilled the law. And so here comes John the Baptist at this critical and pivotal time of redemptive history. A time between the old covenant and the coming of Jesus representing the new covenant. And here between these two worlds stands this transitional figure with a foot in both worlds. This poor guy named John the Baptist. It might help us to think about some transitional figures in history to appreciate the position that John the Baptist is in. One name that came to my mind quickly was Pope John Paul. Pope John Paul, one of the greatest transitional figures in history. He grew up under the heavy, oppressive communist system in his native Poland. And as the Pope later, he would play a critical role in helping tear down the wall and usher a whole new season of freedom into Eastern Europe. Another interesting transitional figure I thought about, Ohio-born and Ohio-bred Branch Ricky. If you go to Ohio Wesleyan, that's where he was a graduate of. It's where he went to school, later coached both baseball and football. In the early part of the 20th century, you'll see quotes by him on various plaques. As a student there, and while he was coaching, Ricky felt intimately the pain of racism through an interaction with one of his black players. His was a world. Ours was a world in that era of blatant racism and Jim Crow laws. But in 1947, with multiple motivations, partly because of his religious worldview, partly because of his experience with this young black man as a coach, and then partly because he wanted to field the best team possible, he introduced the world to Jackie Robinson. He helped usher in a new wave of civil rights and a dismantling of Jim Crow laws. Branch Rickey, through his life, lived in both of those worlds, a foot in both worlds. John the Baptist was the very last of the Old Testament prophets. Yet because of his assignment, he broke rank with them. They looked to a future day when the Messiah would come. John said, that day is here. The Messiah is here. The Savior is here. And John helped launch this new age in the story of God. You know, the fact that Jesus was baptized by John shows the connection between these two worlds. But when John's baptism, his ministry of baptism was completed, there was no turning back to it. It was finished. So, Here are John's disciples working away, and they might have remembered that this new guy in town, Jesus, hey, he was actually baptized by John. So they were dismayed. They were confused when 
all of John's crowds, all of the influence was diminishing and everybody was going to Jesus. But do you see John's response here? Over and against the reaction of his followers? He wasn't threatened. He's actually overjoyed. He could not be any happier that his star was fading. What? He could not be any happier than his star was fading. I mean, how could that be? That's so opposite from our, our, we have to be the best. You have to be the best. You've got to be better than the next guy. That spirit of competition that just pervades our world, men towards men and women towards women. And unfortunately, John's response was much different than what happens often in the church culture and the church world as well. The disciples see with this small picture. Their scope is way too narrow. And so John shares a parable. To help them, he shares a parable. And he says, I see this coming kingdom, which will manifest itself into the church. And he says to his guys, listen, this coming church, she doesn't belong to me. She's not my spouse. She belongs to someone else. But do you still rejoice in the marriage, John? Well, yes, of course I do. Because I'm a friend of the bridegroom. Now, a friend, sort of a little bit like our best man, maybe a little different in this era, the one who, who was uh, helping the, 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 the uh, groom, presided over and helped organize the wedding. Sounds a little dangerous, doesn't it? A guy organizing the wedding. Doesn't happen too much today. But this guy played a pivotal part. He's attending the bridegroom. When it was all said and done in a Jewish wedding, he could take pride and satisfaction. I made it happen. I got it done. The same thing he's saying here. I have helped usher in a new era. There is a coming bride, and I have played a role in helping connect and unite that bride to their faithful king, to their faithful Messiah. This is the satisfaction that John speaks of and knows. So you see, with all this background, it's a very familiar verse, but I wanted to give a little bit of, I want to fill in a little bit before we looked at this verse, verse 30, a favorite of many Christians. With all of this background then, John can say with conviction, not like regret, not like, oh man, this is hard, or not like, you know, yes, I, this is regrettable. But with joy, he says, he must increase. And I must decrease. It's a life statement I know for many of you. He must increase. I must decrease. You see, in so many words, John the Baptist is replying back to his disgruntled disciples saying, I trust God's sovereign, wise choices. I trust the assignment he's given me. It's from him and it's for him. And if I lose it, that's okay. Because it's his. I think this is what he's saying when he said earlier that in verse earlier in that passage, he says a person cannot receive one thing unless it has been given to him from heaven. So he operates differently, doesn't he? It's a different mentality from our previous examples, myself included. Remember, John was a powerful and influential speaker who could draw 
large crowds. But success did not lead to a downward cycle of self-validation. Success did not make him so dizzy. Success did not make him so obsessed that he could not envision his life without it. Rather, he saw his gifts from God and he used those gifts for a purpose outside of himself. That kept him grounded. And when he was called to pass the baton, it made his joy complete. So we see this is John the Baptist's place in God's story. And how does he find his part? Let me mention two brief things. How does he find his part in the story? Well, number one, John the Baptist is in tune with God's will. John the Baptist is in tune with God's heart. He knows the big story. And for you and me, if we're ever going to understand our place in the kingdom of God, our place in this world, it will begin by first knowing and becoming acquainted with God's story. John the Baptist wrapped not just his mind, but his heart and his emotions around that story. And then secondly, he finds his assignment within that story, I think because he has listened, he's learned to listen to the voice of the bridegroom. Do you notice what it said there? He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. This is a result of learning to discern his still, small voice in the midst of many competitors. Ours is a very loud and noisy world. And it will require of us a kind of a discipline in order to quiet our souls and to quiet the world so that we can learn to hear and discern his still, small, quiet leadings and his voice. This is where I think John the Baptist began to understand and know his place in the story. Okay, let's go to our third question. Why is Jesus greater? At first, this might seem disconnected, but let me connect it for you. Why is Jesus greater? Because in the remaining verses, verses 31 through 36, John the Baptist, or actually maybe John's commentary about him. We don't know if it's John the Baptist speaking or whether the Apostle John is giving commentary. Either way, one more reason is given why John the Baptist must decrease. And that is that he knows his limitations. Do you see what it says about him and about us? We are earthbound creatures, aren't we? We are of the earth. Jesus came from heaven. We are of the earth. John the Baptist knew his capacity to sin. Like you and me, he fought against its encroachment every single day of his life. He was of the earth. He knew his limits. And he says, Jesus must increase. Look at the comparison that is made here between John the Baptist, or you and me, and Jesus Christ that he makes in these verses. Let me just give you here as a summary five things that are contained in these verses. Number one, Christ is from heaven. He comes from heaven. He's above all. 
As a matter of fact, we see here a hint of even his pre-existence. Secondly, he speaks from personal experience. He has been with the Father. He speaks from what he has seen and what he has heard. Thirdly, he speaks divine words, utters the words of God himself. Four, he speaks as a beloved son. He's secure. He's so secure. He is fueled by the right things. He's so secure in the love of his father. And fifthly, he speaks with authority. Because the Father has given all things into His hands. And He has the power to judge and to make right. He will. He will bring justice. He will wrong. He will make right every wrong. God the Father gives Christ Jesus the authority and the power to judge. And to make all things right. And He will do that in the end. This is why Christ must increase. None of us can do that. Right? None of us can lay claim to this. It's what Christ must do. John could call people to baptism, but he could not reveal heaven's intimate counsels. John could call people to repentance, but he could not make people new. He could not give that gift of regeneration we talked about several weeks ago. This idea of being born from above, of being made as a new creation. He couldn't do that. He couldn't give the Holy Spirit. John was not the sender. He was the sent. In all of his success, he never lost sight of that. That's what blows my mind away. In all of his success, he never lost sight of that. They thought he was the Christ. The crowds thought he was the Christ. He could have taken advantage of that. But he pointed not to himself, not to his accomplishments, not to his successes, not to his legacy. He pointed to Jesus. It's why he fell at his feet in reverent worship. It's why he said he was not worthy to even untie his sandals. I love what the 4th century Catholic theologian Augustine said. He wrote this. He wants to be loved in him. That's John the Baptist wants to be loved in Christ. And he hates the idea of being loved instead of him. My goodness. What a challenge. We so desperately get in the way, don't we? Of what God is trying to do in people's lives. Because we want to be the one who's at the center. We want to be the point of contact. We want to be the one getting the love and affirmation. But look at his heart. I don't ever want to be in the way. I I want to be secure in the love of Christ. And I don't want to get in the way of others loving him first. I love that quote. So swept up in worship, lost in his love. This is how John could be perceived as losing by others and still walk away with joy and confidence. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Think about it. When we see some powerful leader walk away from his position graciously without having power like ripped from his hands... We think, man, that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It really is. You know, I think of, I, I thought of an example here of David Packard. Some of you know David Packard's story of the you know, famous Hewlett and Packard. I mean, this guy retired graciously. 
And, uh, uh, and yet he was, you know, at one point asked to come back to do a reorg and the company still called by his name. And I'm sure he still receives, or he did, he's passed away now, but I'm sure he still received quite a, you know, quite a pension. So even in a gracious retirement without a difficult transition to power, um, we say that's a beautiful thing. Well, this is even more beautiful because there was no parachute for John the Baptist to fall on. There was no company named after him. When his star diminished, it diminished. And that's why the writer tells us that he was still alive because it wouldn't be long till he would give his very life, laying it down for, his, for the cause of what he lived for. He lived by raw faith. He lived by raw faith. His recognition, his honor would come at a different place and a different time in a different world. That's what he believed. So finally, just a brief comment. How does all this change us? It's very simple. We want to find out God's story. We want to find our place in God's story. And then we want to be the same people who live by faith like John the Baptist did. You see, when we begin to see this kind of world, we begin to ask the question, am I called or am I driven? Think about that question. Are you called? Called by God? Or are you driven by something below the surface that's really about you? You called or are you driven? By seeing our talents as gifts from God that are best developed when they are used for Him outside of ourselves. That's how we begin to find our place in this world. And freed from having to be recognized by our peers, like John the Baptist, we can hear His voice. That still, small voice. That leadership that produces a calling. A calling that will contribute to the bigger story. If you have a calling and you know God sees it and will reward it, then whatever else happens does not matter. Even if the world's symbols of success, beauty, power, status, wealth, even if the world's symbols of success have eluded you, even if your star is diminishing, you can bear deep in your soul an unwavering satisfaction and a positive expectation of the future by living by faith. Now to hear that voice, it will require you to turn down the volume of the world. When you do that, when you become still, Before God, when you open up your life to his leadership, when you begin to worship him, invariably, you will begin to understand his story and inevitably, you will begin to find your part and your place in that story. Let's pray.
Father, through the power of your spirit and through the power of your love, you know what is happening here in every single heart and what kind of symbols of success have taken place in us? Maybe what kind of lies have lodged in the deep parts of our soul and created a kind of energy that's been destructive and been hurtful to others and self-destructive? Father, you know this morning where every need is. You know that point where there needs to be freedom and healing and a desert place where only life-giving water from your word will produce something new and produce a fruit that will last and a fruit that's permanent. And so, Father, now um, lead us here this morning into a deeper and greater understanding. And as we sing and respond and pray and give our offering, Lord, might we continue to process what we've heard. Not my words, but, but the words of Jesus and the words written about him, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Through Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Before we have a chance to respond back and to pray prayers back to God through our singing and and devotion to Him, I'd like you to pull out that Connect card again. Would you please pull that out? And if there is some next step you desire to take, if there's a commitment that you're making this morning, if there is something you want us to pray for, please let us know on that card. And as a matter of fact, there'll be some members of our prayer team here following the service. If you just feel like you need, you need help, you need someone to just to stand with you and pray with you, this next song is called Before the Throne of God. And that's all that members of our prayer team do. We can't fix the situation. But we can bring you before the one that can. We can bring you before the one that's able to heal and bring freedom from what you're going through. And um, So we'll take, let me take a moment and thank the Father for our offering and uh, give you a chance to begin the process here, what he's seeking to say to you, as well as what he's seeking to give to you. Father, thank you for our moments together and this chance to give back to you, to show you our love, and to support the work of the church and the kingdom around the world. In Christ's name, amen.